0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: What caused the Spanish Armada to set sail for England in 1588? What did Queen Elizabeth I really say in her famous speech at Tilbury? And what really led to the invading force's defeat? These are just some of the questions addressed in today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, all about the Spanish Armada. Our expert for today's episode is Dr Robert Hutchinson. And putting your questions to him was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
3: Our topic for today's Everything You Wanted to Know podcast episode is the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. And our expert is Dr. Robert Hutchinson, a Tudor historian and archaeologist whose critically acclaimed books have been translated into 11 languages. He's a regular broadcaster on British, American, German, Japanese and Australian television. Uh, And thanks so much for joining us today, Robert.
2: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, An exciting, exciting uh, topic to talk about because the Tudors invented propaganda in in our modern sense of propaganda, and we live with myths which the Tudors created to this day. I mean, there's a myth that here is uh, David fighting this gigantically powerful Goliath of naval power. It's not true. In fact, the uh, Armada had fewer ships uh, at sea Fighting the English than, than the English, the English had uh, you know seventy more ships than they did. They had fewer. The Spanish had fewer guns than the uh, than the English. Hundred and thirty-eight heavy guns compared to the the English is two hundred and fifty-one. They had a third less uh, firepower. So that myth has to be blown away. Um, and there's many more fascinating aspects of this campaign, which most people don't know about. And this is our chance to remedy that.
3: Absolutely. Well, we've had some fascinating listener questions, and if I can just remind uh, listeners the format of this episode, uh, we're looking at popular search queries around the subjects as well as listener questions. So thank you to everybody who's got in touch on social media. And so, Robert, if we can start at the very beginning then, how before these myths start building up, um, the, the question that's most commonly put to Google in this case is what was the Spanish Armada?
2: Right. Well, first of all, a little bit of background. Philip II of Spain, the King of Spain, um, had ruled England jointly uh, with his second wife, Mary I, before her death 30 years before. And he wanted to overthrow Mary's half-sister, Elizabeth, because she was Protestant and and had returned England to Protestantism. So Philip wanted... To, to make England Catholic again, preferably with one of his relatives as the new monarch. So he decided to launch the Spanish Armada, 129 ships tasked with invading England in 1588 and bring it back to uh, the Vatican. So it was planned by uh, that the uh, Lord Chief Admiral of Spain, Santa Cruz, but he died in February fifteen eighty eight, and the operational command was taken over by Alonso de Guzman, uh, the Duke of Medina Sidonia. Now there were lots of other admirals. I mean, the the, uh, the Armada uh, actually sailed with ten admirals uh, in its ships. They were far more skilled, far more experienced. They had knowledge of naval warfare, which Sidonia didn't have. He was an administrator. He was a pen pusher. And he took on the job, I have to say, rather unwillingly, not only because of his uh, lack of military experience, but he's also terrified of seasickness. But Philip was a micromanager, and he admired Medina Sidonia's attention to detail and paperwork skills, and so therefore he insisted on him taking command of the Armada. Now, the English fleet was commanded by Charles Howard, uh, Baron Effingham, Lord Hyde Admiral of uh, England from 1585. And he wisely appointed experienced naval commanders, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Martin Frobisher, Sir John Hawkins, all as skilled subordinate commanders.
3: Okay, that's a fantastic introduction. And is, is it worth saying something about um, Elizabeth I here as well? How, what was sort of her situation in England? How How established was she in her rule at this stage?
2: Right. Well, you have to remember that the Tudor dynasty was unbelievably insecure. Its claim to the throne was pretty legally tenuous. It only achieved by uh, Henry VII winning the Battle of Bosworth. So all five Tudor monarchs all faced other people who had better or equal claims to the throne than they did. They all faced rebellions as well. So it's an insecure monarchy. And when Elizabeth uh, came to the throne in 1588, she returned it to the Protestant church. But more than half of her subjects were Catholic. And the religious changes sparked an uprising against her in November 1569 in the north of England. Like all the other Tudors, they put down any kind of disloyalty ruthlessly and uh, the damage that uh, that suppression caused um left uh, the north of england in an economic p- uh, pariah state for several centuries afterwards in february 1570 pope pius v signed a papal bull that excommunicated elizabeth and deprived her of any pretended right to the english throne which she had monstrously usurped. He also excommunicated any of her subjects who obeyed Elizabeth or her laws or commandments and unwittingly, therefore, made every English Catholic a potential traitor and even an assassin in the, na- in the eyes of Elizabeth's ministers. So a number of Vatican-inspired assassination plots duly followed, uncovered and destroyed by Sir Francis Walsingham Elizabeth's spymaster, who also hunted down all these Catholic priests who were sent into England to uh, comfort and expand the, the, the Catholic population. Now, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, myth number one, uh, the Catholic pretender to the throne of England in February uh, 1587, wasn't a reason for the Armada sailing. It had been mobilising for some time because Philip was incensed by English privateers attacking the gold and silver convoys coming across the Atlantic from Spain's possessions in the New World. And more importantly, since 1585, Elizabeth had been secretly aiding the Dutch rebels in the uh, Spanish Netherlands with troops and cash and she believed, obviously, it was much better to fight the Spanish on somebody else's territory rather than English soil. And Drake, Sir Francis Drake, El Draco, as the Spanish called him, was a thorn in Philip's side, and he had continually attacked Spanish possessions and even had briefly occupied ports in northwest Spain and had raided the Canary and Cape Verde Islands. And Philip had had enough. He asked his nephew, Alexander Farnese, the Duke of Parma, to, to um, plan an expeditionary force to cross from Flanders and land near Cape Margate. And his naval commanders were instructed to create a fleet that can control the seas and protect that expeditionary force uh, as it crossed
3: so 1588 then it there's it sounds like this is obviously the result of a huge amount of historical tension and the roots go way back. So is it fair to say there's no sort of one event that that triggers this sailing it's it's a, a build up of many different
2: factors. It's a build up of, of many things and 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 uh, Elizabeth's uh, privateers were hating Philip in his pocket. the gold and silver were being uh, sequestered by them, his pride uh, was damaged by these raids on Spanish possessions and even on the Spanish mainland. But most of all, this is Elizabeth secretly aiding the rebels, which were causing him more expense, more angst, and more worries in his possessions in the Spanish Low Countries.
3: Okay, so if we can see um, Philip, obviously, that... that. Um motive they're building with him and he's preparing for, for this con- confrontation. We've got a question here from Zoe Maureen on Instagram. Thanks, Zoe, um, who asks, uh, how did England prepare for the invasion or how much were the general populace aware that this was happening?
2: Well, Zoe, that's a good question because here we have a country where the English government believed firmly that uh, if the Spanish had invaded, half the population would come to their assistance, the Catholic half. And so they were in a, in, a, in a very tight space, but they had the, uh, the advantage of good intelligence. Walsingham's spies had informed him of the naval preparation. He even had a spy in the household of the first commander, uh, Santa Cruz. He knew the Spanish order of battle almost at the same time as the Spanish did. Uh, and he also tried other methods economic warfare to try and slow up uh, the dispatch of the uh, spanish armada to give england time to prepare to defend itself so he persuaded the uh, italian banks to um, to refuse credit to philip thereby starving him of funds and he was forced to go cap in hand to the new pope sixtus v uh, for loans. Now, unfortunately, Sixtus was pretty stingy, uh, and he had more likings, it was said, for ducats than or devotions. And after much delay, the pontiff promised the equivalent of, in today's money, £662 million to Philip. But he cannily stipulated, because he liked his ducats, that the first half was only to be paid when the first Spanish soldier landed on English soil, and the remainder paid in equal installments every month afterwards. So Philip was paying out £40 million a month on the preparations for the Armada, and the economy, the Spanish economy, was only saved by the timely arrival of another bullion fleet from the New World. So in England, the Tudor bureaucrats uh, drew up lots of ships, lists of ships which could be leased or commandeered, to augment the Navy Royal, which it was called in those days. They mobilized the militia, they bought weaponry, they surveyed the coast from Hampshire to Dorset for likely landing places that could be fortified. Uh, Drake argued that uh, England shouldn't wait. England should mount a preemptive uh, strike on the Armada to buy more time. Elizabeth, was very dubious about this. Here's a, a, a woman in a man's world who's having to gamble with very little resources, and a one wrong roll of the dice could leave her uh, in real trouble. And she was loath to allow some of her precious warships to go with, with uh, Drake for this preemptive strike. She was prevailed upon to allow them to do it. And so he sailed to Cadiz in 1587 and destroyed 24 ships. But more importantly, he burnt a year's supply of barrel staves and hoops. Now, that doesn't sound very exciting, not much daring doing in burning barrels. But in fact, this proved, this is going to prove a disaster for the Armada uh, because The following year, all its food and fresh water had to be stored in unseasoned casks, and that quickly rotted the food, and it leaked drinking water. And that was one of the problems the Spanish faced. Now, in terms of defending England, the army was divided into two groups. The first, under the Earl of Leicester, was 30,000 strong, and they would fight the Spanish after they landed in force, now the English believed the Spanish would come up the uh, English Channel and attack London, and they stretched booms uh, attached to ships' masts across the uh, across the Thames. Didn't work. First tide came and swept away the ships' masts. So their their defences were pretty ramshackle. So we've got a, we've got a mobile army who's going to swoop down on the invading force. Interestingly, the second army under Lord Hunston, who was a cousin of Elizabeth, was 4,000 men greater. And that was was tasked with defending the sacred person of the Queen. Uh, She would remain in London and have Windsor Castle uh, as the last redoubt, the place where she'd make her last stand. The Tudors couldn't afford to have standing armies. And so they were largely made up of ill-equipped militia who had no military training or discipline. The commander of the Dorset militia firmly believed that his men would sooner kill each other than actually fighting the enemy. Uh, And many lacked helmets. Some were out, uh, some without even a sword. They had bows and arrows. They didn't have many muskets. Um, But they were going to be concentrated near major ports and they would employ this scorched earth uh, tactic to slow up any invasion uh, by destroying bridges, burning crops, driving off farm animals to deny uh, any food to the invader until the main defence force arrived. The English fleet was divided into two parts. One was based in Dover, to interdict the amphibious landing coming across from Flanders, the other uh, under Drake at Plymouth to intercept uh, the armada coming up through the western approaches. So everyone was aware of this national emergency. The menfolk had disappeared into the ranks and the stay-behind's could see the chain of warning beacons being built on the hilltops all along the English Channel. It was the first war in which propaganda played an important part. And government indoctrination warned them of the dire consequences of Spanish success, looting, pillaging, rapine. And they even talked about specially uh, and evilly designed whips and scourges, which they were going to punish the English for opposing them.
3: How would this propaganda have been uh, spread uh, among the people of England?
2: Um, through broadsheets, printed broadsheets. I mean, the, the, the Tudors uh, knew how to employ the power of the printing press. Uh, so these um, proclamations and this propaganda would be nailed up in marketplaces, handed out uh, and and read out at meetings, because not everybody, of course, could read.
3: That's so interesting. Um, and... So if the scene is set then and the preparations have been made as much as they could, um, what, uh, if we can dig into then the fleets themselves, we've had a, que- a couple of questions here about what types of ships were used by both sides. And, and Frank Schumacher has asked, um, was the Spanish Armada really so behind in, in naval technology?
2: Good question, Frank. And the, and the answer is yes. Elizabeth's navy had 38 ships and they were mobilised in October 1587. Four of them dated from Henry VIII's reign of four decades ago. ago. Uh, But 11 had been built in the previous four years, and a further 12 had been rebuilt to modern standards. And and these modern standards had an innovative English design called race-built, the holes were race-built, which reduced... Uh, the height of the raised platforms at the bow and stern. The one in the front was called Forecastle, uh, which is the origin of the forecastle, um, which they still use with names of, names of ships. They lengthened the gun deck, and this produced a sleeker hull, which made them much faster and much more manoeuvrable in the water than the Spanish ships. Uh, Several warships were designed specifically to operate in the shoal waters uh, between England and Flanders, drawing only 12 feet of water, but those rolled alarmingly in the heavy seas, so they weren't weren't great ships to serve on. Now, in addition to the Navy Royal, uh, Elizabeth's fleet had 52 large merchant ships, uh, hired for their crews, their trained crews and their gun armaments, The City of London paid for leasing a further 30 ships, and there were also volunteer ships as well. And most of them served in the Western Squadron, Squadron, based at Plymouth. Dover, there were 26 coastal ships in addition to its warships. So the English fleet therefore numbered 208 ships of all types, with 16,000 crews, and as I said right at the start, despite some beliefs, It was actually larger than the Armada. Now, the Armada uh, had 129 ships organized in in 10 squadrons, Uh, and the the warships were great galleons, much bigger than most of the English ships, much less maneuverable. Uh, And they had uh, hulks, uh, which were used for transporting uh, food and men. So of the 129, 70 were warships with sizable contingents of troops on board because the Spanish believed naval warfare was just another kind of land warfare. Um, That's why they had lots of troops on board. They believed in boarding ships and capturing them and killing the crews rather than sinking them. Within that uh, 129, there were four galleys uh, propelled by... Slaves at oars, uh, and two of those were wrecked on the way up on the coast of France. And there were also four galleasses, which are gun platforms with sails and oars, and they were useful uh, to manoeuvre in flat calms. The devastating effect in the battle of, of Portland, the English were worried about the the uh, the galashes, uh actually cutting. Uh, cutting out some of the English ships from the rest of the fleet. So in terms of naval technology, the English had also perfected the art of firing broadsides uh, with guns made and mounted specifically for naval warfare, whereas the Spanish had lined artillery on huge carriages. So the faster and more agile English ships could hold their adversaries below the waterline. They could come up behind and actually fire through their sterns through the entire length of the ship. Terrible destruction. And head off before the Spanish could reply. They also had a faster rate of fire. So the English were rather like hounds harrying their quarry. The other problem the Spanish had, as I mentioned just now, these were huge artillery carriages they had. You had to pull them back on the Spanish ships inboard to to load them. Uh, And that's a slow and cumbersome uh, business. And the crews were soldiers. Now, if they were massing to board a ship, you actually lost the people to fire your guns because they were detailed to other duties. Uh, and their rate of fire was much lower than the English. There was one ship only fired 104 rounds in anger. Now, we know how much gunpowder was loaded on board because of the, the cargo manifest at Lisbon. Uh, and it was those 104 rounds in, in anger, fired in anger, was less than half than the Spanish that ship had used for saluting or ceremonial purposes. So the the Spanish had fewer heavy guns uh, to the English, they had less ships, they were not so manoeuvrable, they were slow and ponderous, and their guns didn't work in any way as, as, as fast or as effective as the English
3: Okay, brilliant. Well, I hope that answers your, your question, Frank. An excellent answer there, thanks, Robert. And, and one we've got as well from Matt LFC, which kind of leads in from that one. Um, he's asked, what was the makeup of of the crew on the Spanish side? Um, you mentioned the galleys carrying enslaved people, but do we know much about where people were from?
2: Yes, I mean, most of them came from Northwest Spain. There were 7,700 sailors and 18,703 soldiers. On the crew lists of of the uh, of the Spanish imado, which still exist, most were Spanish. There were some Italians, but there was also, interestingly, quite a substantial contingent of exiled English Catholics on board, and they ran into trouble in the in the later battle uh, in, uh, which the imado was involved in, uh, when some of them were run ashore and were captured by. Uh, Uh, Dutch uh, rebels. So their fates were sealed.
0: Still to come on the History
2: Extra podcast. They actually carried on board the Armada a prefabricated fort, which they were going to erect on the Mark 8 landing beaches to protect those beaches for resupply. If they had landed, the ill-trained, ill-equipped militia would have been no matches for them. And I think if they had landed, they would probably have been in the streets of London only a week or so after landing.
1: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings
3: Okay, interesting stuff. Well, before we go into the battle itself, then we've had quite a few questions about uh, a speech that was made by Elizabeth I. Um, it's a very famous famous speech. I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with with well a, a bunch of information around it, which we're going to talk about today. So we've had we've had a question here from Al Wearmouth on on uh, Instagram, who's asked: Is it true? Did the speech actually happen, or was it just propaganda?
2: Good question. Lots of people have debated about this. We know what Elizabeth said because her words were jotted down by uh, Leicester's chaplain, a man called Dr. Lionel Sharp. And, of course, the words were also promulgated afterwards. Propaganda. Uh, And here's the Queen on a white charger wearing a breastplate, an armoured breastplate, and carrying a a marshal's baton. And uh, she did make this speech on the 19th of August, 1588, at uh, Leicester's headquarters at a fort called Tilbury on the Thames Estuary. It was pure propaganda. Here she is saying she, she had the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I had the heart and stomach of a king. Great words, cleverly written. But, of course... She was warning of the dangers of a Spanish invasion, but she knew very well that the, two, that the Armadas were in full retreat as, uh, as she made that speech northwards up the North Sea after this bruising battle off the coast of Holland. Even though they pretended to keep up the, uh, the uh, tension by spreading rumours that there had been a landing on the coast of France, on the coast of Kent, it was propaganda. And indeed, Elizabeth was always parsimonious, always worried about the size of a checker, started demobilizing her forces almost immediately after making the speech. So it was propaganda, but it was great propaganda. It was, it's great prose, it's stirring stuff, and uh, it shows the mettle of Elizabeth I even though she knew very well it was just propaganda.
3: Well, I think that um, I've skipped us ahead a little bit there. So um, perhaps we could go back to the, the battle um, and how this plays out before we get to Elizabeth's speech.
2: So, so the Spanish are sighted. Uh, they come up the channel in a, in a crescent-shaped formation. Difficult, For the English to fight, the English, the Western fleet had to be towed out of Plymouth, uh, and uh, the early encounters were pretty inconclusive. Indeed, most of the encounters were pretty inconclusive. The damage suffered by the Armada—they'd lost a few ships coming up in some awful storms. But the first damage they suffered was by accident when two ships collided with each other and another one blew up. And the English battered the armada, but they actually hadn't stopped it. Neither had they defeated it. So when they arrived off the uh, Coast of when the Armada arrived off the coast of, of Calais, the threat was still real, and that's when they started using fire ships. A galley, a was uh, was destroyed in in, in Calais Harbour. By the time it came to the end game, the battle off the coast of Holland, the uh, the Armada was basically intact. And still a viable threat. So so one asks oneself, you know, why didn't the English land a stunning blow? One of the reasons for that was the thing I mentioned just now Elizabeth's parsimony, they didn't have enough gunpowder. They had to actually keep going by using stocks of gunpowder on those two Spanish ships which were damaged which they had captured, they had the advantage of being close to home. Uh, So they could be resupplied with food and water, ammunition. But they were using up the ammunition and gunpowder at a furious rate. But uh, by the time the Spanish had uh, arrived off the coast of Calais, they were still a very viable and dangerous threat. Amplified one might say, by an unfortunate piece of timing, that the militia at Dover mutinied because they hadn't been paid. So the idea of a national emergency was being ramped up quite considerably. It was, it was do or die if the, uh, the Spanish Armada um, could be um, attacked uh, in a set-piece battle off the coast of Holland, and, and it was.
3: Okay, so so what what plays out next?
2: Well, again, the, the Armada was battered. They lost a few ships. Some were grounded on the coast of, coast of Holland. But at the end of that day's fighting, they they were still a fighting force. But they were short of water because of these leaky casts. They were short of food. And the morale was blown away. And... For reasons which people still dispute to this day, the decision was taken to go home. And uh, they sailed northwards to go round the coast of, north coast of Scotland and down the west coast of Ireland and so to home. An amazing decision to take. The charts they had... Uh, were pretty limited. they had no idea of what problems they would face uh, in those unknown shores. Uh, they were in desperate states in terms of water. I mean they, uh, off the coast of Newcastle they threw all their horses and donkeys over over the side because they couldn't they couldn't water them uh, and then they hit what basically was a cyclone. The series of unbelievable storms which began to to sink all the Spanish armada ships. And they were basically told, every man for himself, head home as best you can. And large numbers were sunk off the coast of uh, Scotland, the coast of uh, the Hebrides, and most of all down the west coast of, of Scotland. Those who survived the shipwrecks, were killed by the English or the Irish, or captured and ransomed. Uh, In terms of, you know, how many were lost by the Spanish, um, we don't know how many Spanish were killed uh, in the running fight up the Channel or in that battle. We know only anecdotal information, like the the decks of the flagship uh, were piled high, with corpses 40 deep. But the Spanish believed they'd lost about 6,000 drowned or afterwards killed by English soldiers or Irish peasants off the coast of Ireland. Recent documentary research suggests that, in fact, the number was 3,750 who died from either drowning, hunger or disease after coming ashore. 1,500 were killed after surviving, uh, shipwreck, and there were 750 survivors in Ireland. Of those 108 major combatant ships out of the 129, 58 returned to Spain, 54% of those who uh, who sailed. So almost half the major warships were. Uh, didn't get back, and the numbers greater if you include the little messenger uh, dispatch vessels. Uh, they had even greater losses. Now, in terms of English casualties, the Tudors cared nothing for casualties in their wars. So we don't have any numbers or any credible estimates of uh, English losses other than uh, the fact that half of them had fought in the Armada were dead from disease or starvation. Uh, within months of the victory. In, uh, Elizabeth sp- spent a total of uh, £167,000 on fighting the campaign. That's about £470 million in current money. And just £180 pounds of that uh, went on government rewards for the injured. The amount of bad feeling this caused uh, was such that when they had their victory celebrations at uh, St Paul's Cathedral afterwards, there was some concern whether the procession would be attacked by discontented soldiers and sailors. But interestingly, in 1590, Drake and uh, Lord Howard of Effingham and other sailors created this Chatham chest where everybody in the fleet contributed six pennies to pay for the upkeep and welfare of Injured sailors who've been hurt in warfare. The Chatham Chest still survives today. There's there's, there's a building in Chatham, which houses a number of um, disabled mariners. Uh, that was a direct result of the Spanish Armada campaign.
3: That's such an interesting welfare initiative. Like, had that happened um, in any conflicts before? Do you know, or was this
2: a? It was the first time, and and I think it was it was. Uh, because of the losses in through, through disease uh, amongst the fleet almost immediately after the defeat of the Armada. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, Howard, uh, Lord Howard of Effing was selling off the family silver to try and pay for the medical care of these people dying from typhus and uh, cholera.
3: Okay. Well, we, we did have a listener question on, on, on that. So thank, uh, Christy May asked how many lives were lost. So, so I think that that um, really addresses that point very well. Um, and there obviously were, um, on the Spanish side, these very significant losses. Uh, and just to revisit some points you've made already in terms of the turning points of the, of the water and the weather, um, we've had quite a few listener questions. Um, Anna Larini, James Dallin, Colin McCormick, thank you all for your questions on how much did weather and luck... Play a part ultimately.
2: It's it's. I mean, these are crucial questions, and uh, it's all about is about weather, and it's about luck. It's, but there's also strategic issues where the Spanish were pretty pretty bad. I mean, here we've got Philip, who is sending dis, uh, dispatches to the fleet, you know, twenty a day, taking taking micromanaging decisions on a fleet 600 miles away. Um, The plan was always going to be pretty tricky to achieve. They were instructed by Philip not to get involved in a fight. Don't stop. Keep going. Concentrate on joining up with Palmer's army uh, and guard his assault uh, launched from Flanders. Strategic mistake number one. If they had bottled up the Western fleet in Plymouth Harbour, England would have faced catastrophe. If they had captured the Isle of Wight, which had practically no viable defences, it would have been difficult for them to be winkled out from a position commanding the English Channel and the Portsmouth naval base. Communications between the Armada uh, and Palma failed completely. Uh, Medina Solet, Sedona, kept sending dispatch vessels up to Flanders uh, and heard nothing back. When the Armada got off, arrived off Calais, to his horror, he discovered that Parma wasn't ready to invade. Not one soldier or one horse had been embarked on these uh, Barges. Now, on the English side, I've talked about their their, their serious lack of of uh, gunpowder, their failure to inflict a telling and killing blow, and the accidents involving these ships. I mean, more more uh, armada ships were damaged by accident than by the English, but it was the storms that actually did the damage, coming up from Spain, and then while they retreated round uh the north coast of scotland and down the west side of ireland that was um what later uh the dutch called the protestant wind that's what did the damage
3: okay so um very interesting um points there. And and we've got a question here from Emma Lai Classen, who has asked whether it's true, you've mentioned um, some Spanish sailors ended up on the west coast of Ireland. Um, And Emma has asked, is it true there are descendants of Spanish survivors who married local women there? Is there anything known about that?
2: Yes. As I've said, many of the Spanish uh, survivors were killed by English forces. Others were captured and ransomed. Some Spanish soldiers entered the service of an Irish magnate uh, Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, uh, and served with him for some time. Eight years later, uh, there were still eight still serving in his in his little in his household. So it's entirely plausible that some married uh, local women. The rest of the Spanish who were captured were were, as I say, ransomed off. Elizabeth was always interested in making money. Uh, and they had a pretty, pretty tough time. They didn't. Most, a lot of them didn't actually get back to Spain for quite a long time. They spent their time in Bridewell Prison in in uh, in uh, in uh, London and in Dublin. Uh, awful, awful time. But there again, if you're a prisoner of war in the Tudor period, you know your life was only worth the ransom if you didn't have rich relatives uh, back home. Uh, you were a goner.
3: Okay, if we can allow ourselves a little uh, speculation then, we've got a question here from Hamish Ross in New Zealand who asks, had the Spanish successfully landed in England, what were their prospects for success in battle on land and ultimate conquest?
2: Well, Hamish, I I mean, amphibious warfare, amphibious landings, is a riskiest type of military operation you could ever conceive of. Uh, success depends on a whole range of imponderables, tides, wind, weather, or the scale of of uh, risk of attack when you're at sea, which is when you're, you're most vulnerable, all these people bobbing around in the water. Uh, what you don't want is the enemy getting in amongst you. So The other aspect is if you're bottled up on the beaches, you've got nowhere to go apart from the sea. So it's the most riskiest kind of military operation you can can plan. And this was probably the riskiest in history. The idea of towing barges with troops and horses on board uh, across 30 or 40 miles of choppy water is astonishing. Just a rough sea could have actually just disrupted the whole thing. The most important thing, as far as the Spanish was concerned, was local sea control. They needed to build a a protected corridor for this uh, huge flotilla of towed barges to to, to sail inside because they don't want the fast-moving ships getting in amongst them and causing mayhem. I mean, they are sitting ducks, sitting ducks. But the Spanish planning was pretty thorough. They actually carried on board the Armada a prefabricated fort, which they were going to erect on the Margate landing beaches to protect those beaches for resupply. Now, Kent and Margate aren't very far away from London. Palmer's army were battle-hardened veterans. Lots of them were mercenaries. They were tough guys. If they had landed, the ill-trained, ill-equipped militia would have been no matches for them. And I think if they had landed, they would probably have been in the streets of London only a week or so after landing.
3: Oh, what a compelling possibility. It's very interesting, isn't it? Okay, um, so we've got a few questions then. Uh, James Snelling and Alex Plotkin have both asked variations of um, what is the significance of England's defeat of the Spanish Armada? I guess we can say what happened next.
2: Okay, well, I mean, this was a a terrible blow to Spanish prestige, Uh, the perception of Spain as one of the superpowers of the 16th century. Aside from the Dutch rebels, rebels and, the, and the Protestants in Germany, the remainder of Europe was staunchly Catholic, and they were astonished and horrified at the scale of the Armada's defeat. They initially believed the Armada had won. The Spanish had propaganda too. The Dutch struck a medal celebrating how a Protestant wind had intervened to defend, defeat the, uh, the Spanish. Uh, and before the campaign, public opinion in England wasn't wholly supportive of Elizabeth. Some shipowners sent their vessels overseas to prevent them being commandeered for active service. Many clergy refused to contribute money to pay for um, the militia. And worse yet... 12 Bristol merchants were caught supplying Spain with cargoes of ammunition and gunpowder and ordnance they they were they met a pretty grim fate i suspect so so opinion in, in england was 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 divided and don't forget the government expected the catholic population to come in on the uh, spanish side if they invaded so Spanish, Spanish uh, diplomatic power was damaged by this crippling defeat. But it, Philip was undeterred, and he continued to expend resources on invading England, even though the English had tried an attack to, uh, to try and sink the remaining arm, armada ships. Failed because Drake was more interested in plunder. And quite interestingly, in, in July... Uh, 1595, four Spanish galleys landed at Mosul in Cornwall, burnt the village and the church, sailed on to Penzance, uh, which was also burnt, as was Newlyn. And they left 12 days after celebrating a Catholic Mass openly on English soil. And, and only uh, three Cornishmen were killed, and that's because the militia ran away. Um, there were further armadas in 1596. 120 ships, again, caught in fierce storms off the Galatian coast, and they headed home. And in the following year, 1597, when 136 ships uh, sailed with plans to land at Falmouth in Cornwall. Once again, nine days into the voyage, a three-day northeast storm sank 28. Uh, when they were only 28 miles off uh, of Cornwall. So maybe the Dutch had a point about the Protestant wind. After the death of Elizabeth in 1603, the new king, uh, Henry uh, James I, wanted an end to the crippling war with Spain, which had been carrying on all those years. The Treaty of London, signed in August 1604, ended the conflict, ironically granting most of the Spanish demands such as support for the Dutch rebellion and uh, renouncing privateer attacks on Spanish shipping. So, the treaty basically gave the Spanish everything they wanted, despite those three armadas and this war which had been carrying on for decades. So, what we believe, as I say right at, right at the outset, is, is is about the campaign against the armada is a myth shaped by that. 500-year-old propaganda. England was saved by her navy, and in the the aftermath, for the first time, there was the the sense of nationhood about England. It it created the sense of nationhood. Uh, The Spanish trade embargoes forced the English to trade elsewhere with Russia, Africa, and Elizabeth signed a charter creating the East India Company, Um, that was the crucible which actually founded the British Empire. So out of the Spanish Armada came the realisation of just how important a strong navy is. But also, you could say, it was a major factor in creating the British Empire.
3: Right. Uh, And do you think then that those factors are um, the reasons why it's looms so large in public memory today?
2: I think it's more the romance sort of the thing. Here we have these foreigners with seemingly overwhelming force being, being because of the myth says that they were defeated by the brave and plucky uh, Englishmen in their little, little, little ships. It wasn't quite that, but patriotism is a, is, a, is a powerful emotion and that's what has been fed by this propaganda. That's what harbours these myths even to the present day.
3: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Robert, today for all of these answers. And and I would ask perhaps to wrap things up. um, Where would you point anyone towards if they would like to find out more? Any of your own work, for example?
2: Well, that's a kind thought. I did write uh, a book on the Spanish Armada, which uh, is a blow-by-blow account, uh, not only of the action, but of the intelligence war and the propaganda war uh, that went on. And it includes a lot of very little known facts because it's based on contemporary documents i must just finish with one little piece of propaganda which which uh, the government disseminated after the, the spanish armada retreated and it was it's in the british library it's a printed uh, verse set of verses printed in black letter but type and it's all about it's it's a government's first official health warning on record and it's all about: Is it safe to eat fish if they've been feeding on the diseased corpses, mainly with venereal disease, diseased corpses of Spanish sailors? And back came the answer: Yes, it is. This is how you prepare your fish. Black propaganda, but I love it. I love it as a, as the first government health warning.
0: That was Robert Hutchinson. You can find out more about the defeat of the Spanish Armada, including a helpful written guide by Robert, on our website at historyextra.com forward slash Spanish hyphen Armada. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.